Welcome to Football Never Sleeps, the off-season YouTube show focusing on Notre Dame football from us at Inside ND Sports. And it's also going to be our in-season football show. It used to be called Monday Night Live. We're changing the name of it just because we like Football Never Sleeps better. It will be on Monday nights um, when we get to the season, but for now we're moving it around to make sure that we reflect the breaking news and the developments and training camp as much as we can. Um, we also, during, if you've never watched us before, or if you've ignored us before, we take your questions during the show. We work them in during the subject matter. Tyler's going to give you a little bit of a tutorial here in just a second. I also wanted to welcome aboard our new sponsor, who is Legacy Heating and Air. And I have been using Legacy Heating and Air for years in my own home with furnace and air conditioning. Um, Legacy Heating and Air, their slogan is the home of the on-time guarantee. If they're not there when they say they will be, the service call is free. Um, they have equipment from Daikin Comfort Pro. Daikin is made right here in the United States. And Legacy Heating and Air is a Cook family business. If you want to find out more details or see what I butchered in those details, it's LegacyHeatingAndAir.com. Now to Tyler and the question tutorial, and then we're going to jump into tonight's topics. Yeah, well, first, I am not a homeowner, but I know whenever I do own a home that if I have any air or heating or air issues, that Legacy Heating and Air is who I'll be using because Eric has been singing their praises for, for a long time now, so I know that... He, he swears by their work, so that's that's awesome that they're on board with us. If you want to ask questions during the show um, and you are maybe not YouTube affluent, uh, let's, uh, if on the right-hand side, there will be a chat box if you're using YouTube on a desktop. Um, make sure you're either on the YouTube site or if you're on a mobile app or a, a, a mobile device using the, using the mobile app. Um, and if you are on a mobile device, the, the chat box will be to the bottom of the uh, of your screen below us you can just enter in a comment there uh, doesn't have to be a question we like to know who's checking in who's who's hanging out with us this evening um so we appreciate uh anyone sending in questions sending in comments we like to see the names popping up in the chat as we're as we're conducting the show um but uh hopefully you have some good questions i know um we have plenty of questions about Notre Dame football still that have yet to be answered going into um the 2023 season but first eric i know i think we want to talk about what we've at least taken away from from notre dame these first few practices right and before i move to that the takeaway from my background here is we added the rivals five-star football <laughs> last week my grandkids saw that and they have added the spongebob squarepants golden spatula <laughs> to the to the array of background things so <laughs> Fortunately, I think my head covers it most of the time. But <laughs> yeah, yeah we're, right. we're, we're going to go through um, the big takeaways so far from training camp. And I, I will caution that although we are in practice number eight as of today, and it was not one where we had any um, where we had any access to whether viewing or interviews afterwards, we've only seen one full practice. And that was before there were any pads on, and it was the first day of practice. So um, 
there'll be more insight to come and we'll talk about that a little bit later. But Tyler, let's start with your three takeaways and then I'll list mine and we can kind of go back and forth. Yeah. And my takeaways aren't vastly different than what my takeaway takeaways were from the first practice, just because like you mentioned, that first practice is where we've seen the majority of the action that we've been able to see. Right. I, the first five periods that we get to watch a practice, if anyone's not too familiar with that, I would sort of compare it to like what you would see if you got to a football game early when you see the players out on the field uh, getting getting loosened up and then they do some position drills. And at, at least at that point, they, at the end, they do run some plays against each other, but we don't even get to see that part uh, during the first five periods. So like like Eric mentioned, the the big picture takeaways are tough because we don't see as much of that in these five period settings. But I think I've seen enough from um, a few different aspects of the team to have some of these takeaways. So my first takeaway um, is that the quarter cornerbacks um, are the strength of the defense. I think um, the depth there, the top end talent um, is very, I mean, I, I don't know that there's a lot, at least from when I've covered Notre Dame over the last 11 years, um, that is, sort of the equivalent to I think this is probably the best cornerback group that Notre Dame has had um from top to bottom during that time um and, and even just top to top I mean you're talking about right two pretty I mean, high I mean yeah I mean Julian Love picks. Julian Love was great yeah. um but Julian Love wasn't surrounded by a lot of Julian Love type players when he, <laughs> he was didn't playing. get a lot of love <laughs> Um, so, and, and I think, I mean, Benjamin Morrison could end up being better than Julian Love. I think that's, I think that's fair to say. Um, so I think that, that, that's my number one takeaway. Um, my number two takeaway is that I think without a doubt, Jaden Thomas is wide receiver one on this team. I think he is the clear number one target for Sam Hartman. Um, I think he can do a little bit of, of everything. Um, I think he's going to make a lot of plays as well. I don't know that he's going to be someone that's making explosive plays or turning a, a seven-yard catch into a 25-yard catch with regularity, but I think he's going to be the go-to guy in this offense. Um, he's going to make himself available in a number of different ways, and that's going to be something that Notre Dame will very frequently utilize. Um, and then my third takeaway is that the running backs have great depth. That's something I talked about after the first practice. I was impressed by that group. And I've continued to be impressed by sort of what they have there with, with those guys beyond just Audric Estime, that Jadarian Price and Devin Ford and Jabron Payne, all those guys look ready to go. Jeremiah Love, um, I'm interested to see what he can do as a freshman. So I think there's a lot to like about where Notre Dame's running back depth is so far. Okay, I went a little bit more broad than you. So I will start with the defense is creating a buzz for mostly good reasons. Now, again, I'm I'm eager to see what that looks like in competitive periods mm -hmm. with pads on. Um, but there seems to be a lot of excitement about being in year two of the Al Golden scheme and what that means for this defense. Um, as far as the offense, I think the offensive pieces look upgraded but we haven't seen a lot of it together we've seen it right you know in unit drills and in unit drills they look pretty good when you put all these things together what's that going to look like and then the third thing for me is special teams are still getting emphasized and prioritized we still see a lot of the best players on special teams 
we yep. see a lot of special teams periods in practice in the first five anyways. And then I'll add Spencer Schrader has a very powerful leg. I did not expect that. I thought he'd be a guy where his 49-yard field goals were just eking over the crossbar. And they look like they'd be good from well beyond 50 yards. Now, how accurate he is, we'll see, you know, under the pressure, under the bright lights, he was kicking for a team the past few years that hasn't had a lot on the line. So that'll be kind of an interesting thing. So then we move to the three areas that we hope to learn more about in the upcoming media windows. And we ha- our next one will be Saturday. And then we'll get to interview the quarterbacks and the quarterback coach, Gino Gadouli, afterwards. Yeah, and more, more importantly, later next week, uh, we will get a, an opportunity to see our second final full practice. And I think that'll be the most important um, viewing opportunity of the preseason for us, um, in my opinion. So um, the three areas that we, I hope to learn about uh, start one. Number one is safety. Uh, what what does the progress look like at that position? Um, is Antonio Carter ready to potentially be a starter in, in that room? Is it just going to be Xavier Watts and a rotation of other guys? Um, is Ken, Ken Xavier Watts, be that number one without a question, and then a bunch of other guys rotating in and, and around him. I'm, I'm very sort of curious of what that looks like um, in the next few media uh, availabilities. Um, I want to see how well is the defensive line getting after the quarterback. Um, we see very little uh, defensive line work in, in the uh, defensive line going against offensive line work. Um in the five periods that we get. So especially in that full practice, like what does that look like when they're actually scrimmaging and going live? Because that is, I think one of the biggest question marks about the team going into the season. And then I want to know the, my third area is just like, are things starting to settle in at guard? Do they have the answers there that they're looking for? Um, can Rocco Spindler overtake Andrew Kristoffic? I know it's not, it's not necessarily, Christophic's job to lose, but I think I think in a lot of people's mind, at least, I guess maybe I should just speak for myself. I think in my mind, I thought it was Christophic's to lose, and uh, but I do think Spindler is certainly making an impact there and and making it a tough decision. So those are the those are the three things that I'm most interested in. Eric, do we have any overlap there? We do have overlap, <laughs> and and I would say it's fair to say Rocco's the one that has to overtake uh, Andrew Christophic. Okay. Andrew's been taking. In spring and in training camp, more of the number one reps. Rocco's right. been catching up, and Rocco had three snaps last year. Christophic has started games for Notre Dame before, including yeah. one last year. I think it was six in 2021. So, mm-hmm. yeah, he's the one. So, my list, I'll, I'll phrase it more eloquently or worse, one of the two. <laughs> the final alignment from the O-line and then gauging the chemistry and and the prowess of that, um, how the safety group comes together. I'm, I think the next couple weeks are really important for Antonio Carter too. I think mm-hmm. there's a natural period of acclimation of moving from corner to safety, moving from SCS to FBS, but he's kind of a guy that I I'm really watching. And there's some young ones. I mean, Ben Minnick um, has a lot of speed. He's healthy now. Luke Talich, the walk-on, is a really intriguing guy. Uh, six foot four, one ninety-eight, had four 
power five scholarship offers and a whole bunch of FCS offers. And he decided to walk on a Notre Dame. And then my third one is how real the depth and the rotational pieces are in the front sure. seven. There's been a lot of talk about, okay, well, Jalen Sneed's going to do this. And boy, the third string Viper, Joshua Burnham is looking great. And Joshua Burnham was a high highly recruited linebacker who played quarterback and some defense in high school. Uh, but, but a lot of that's talk. So when we get to see those competitive periods is really yeah. one I'm hopeful of seeing. And, and to be mm -hmm. honest um, in the um, blue gold game, some of that depth. Now, again, they weren't, they were very vanilla. They weren't showing any of the packages in the blue gold game. They weren't going to do that. Uh, but, you know, like guys like Tyson Ford and Jaden Osbury, they were impressive in the blue gold game. So I'm I'm interested to see if I see something similar to that. So uh, do we need to take questions, Tyler? Yeah, yeah, let's yeah, let's hop into some questions here. Um, let's take this first one from Joshua Williams. I know you can't predict much after blue gold games, but do you expect Jaden Greathouse to be a top five receiver on the team? Where do you have him ranked at wide receiver on the team? So I did a little exercise today. I was on WSPT radio. I'm on on Wednesdays and Thursdays from five to six. And we didn't get to it because we got so wrapped up in realignment and what that can mean for Notre Dame. Uh, and I had to pick the top five guys in receptions. And Great House was certainly in that mix for the fifth guy. And that's when you're throwing in tight ends and running backs and everything as well. I think there's a role for him, whether Chris Tyree turns out to be the slot receiver he's being whispered about to be um, in fall camp, that that there seems to be a lot of progress that took place over the summer with him. I think Great House is different enough as a slot receiver and mature enough that he's going to get some catches. So I do think he's not going to become an afterthought once we get into the season. Yeah, I, I would. I it was. I, I was considering the wide receivers in one of my. Uh, I mentioned Jaden Thomas as one of my takeaways, being the top wide receiver. And I was thinking of something maybe more broader about the receivers, but I wasn't quite willing to go there. The there, I think there is a pretty big drop off. Like I, I feel confident personally in Jaden Thomas, Chris Tyree, and Tobias Merriweather. Um, after that. Like, like, I think Jaden Greyhouse is in that conversation of who's next after that. I think Matt Salerno is going to play a, a role. Um, I think Rio, Rico Flores probably will play a role. Deion Colsey's sort of been this guy that I want to see play a bigger role, and he, he had some definitely good moment, moments for Notre Dame last season, so I think he's in that mix. I think if he's playing to what, what he's capable of, I think he jumps to the top of that list and maybe is in that conversation um, with those first three guys that I mentioned. So, but I, I would put Great House probably at worst at number five, I think maybe at four. Um, so, in one of those two spots, I don't, I, I really like what Chris Tyree, what I've seen from Chris Tyree. I think he's made a pretty um, nice transition to the slot receiver position. I think he's going to play a significant role for Notre Dame um, doing that. But certainly, Jane Great House is going to get some opportunities as well. Uh, next question is from Bob Alvey. Bob asks, I have read that Navy plans to throw the ball more this season. Are they expected to continue running the option offense? 
they're definitely um, going to be running a triple option. They have some quarterback issues right now. One of the quarterbacks they expected to maybe be their favorite to be the starter has had some academic snags and is working through those. Uh, but if Navy throws the ball more, and I mean, Ken Niamatololo is no longer the head coach, so there's a, a new regime with with there being some carryover, that being the former defensive coordinator. But I don't think that is something that necessarily worries Notre Dame if they do throw it a little bit more, as long as they practice for it. When no, Navy threw the ball last year, it looked like they hadn't practiced it at all. <laughs> you know, it didn't it? I mean, right. it, it was, uh, you know, not real sophisticated patterns. They were able to disguise it well. But I think if Notre Dame goes into it, knowing that this is part of who they're going to be, I think they have the personnel that, that can deal with it. Yeah, and it's not like Notre Dame should have been surprised by it when they built that lead. It's like, well, obviously Navy's going to try to do something different to try to get back in this game. Um, and they were able to have some success with that. So, yeah, I mean, I think I think – that defending the pass against a triple option team, it's just a matter of like not getting lulled to sleep, which is what, I mean, sort of the triple option is sort of meant to do. Like it's, it's testing your discipline to make sure that you're willing to do exactly what you need to stop every single option on every single play and that you don't sort of flinch in those moments. And then when you flinch, that's when Navy is going to try to take advantage of that. Um, And so I I think that uh, Notre Dame certainly, um, should be anticipating some wrinkles there. Obviously, Notre Dame's offense got its its share of wrinkles with basically Navy deciding to play cover zero for the most of the second half, and that really threw Tommy Reese and the Notre Dame offense for a loop. Um, and so I think that Al Golden needs to have the defense prepared for some 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 things that they maybe haven't seen from Navy's offense before, but I still think the base offense will be a triple option offense. Now, maybe they're – keeping things secret um, from us. And I, I, I can't say that I've, I'm reading daily Navy Navy practice reports, but Not yet. Um, the, yeah, as we get closer to August 26th, um, we'll have more information and try to reach out to um, some folks that, that cover Navy for some more insight as well. Yeah. The, the um, one thing about Navy sprinkling in more pass, you know, their offense is predicated on them getting, chunks of four, five, six yards. And if you throw on first or second down and it's second and 10 or third and seven, that's really difficult for Navy then to convert. So, and then they can't hog the ball. They want to shorten the game and, and give you limited possessions and make turnovers really fatal or close to it. So, you know, I'm curious to see what, what it's going to look like, but Notre Dame will be the first one to experience. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's the disadvantage of playing Navy Navy Week One that they they can throw all kinds of different the, things in there. The advantage is then you can toss it out for the rest of the season. Yeah, you don't You're have not that having loom- to shift gears and then shift right. back. Yeah, you don't have that looming over you that you have to have a Navy period once a week uh, or a couple times a week to get prepared uh, for them later down in the season. So I. I we, we have one more question submitted, but that's about recruiting. So we'll leave that till later when we talk more about recruiting. And Eric, I know you wanted to give folks a little bit of a thumbnail of the injury status um, of Notre Dame's football roster right now. 
Sure. So, you know, we always check the injuries. That's one of the benefits of the five periods. Um, there is KK Smith, the wide freshman wide receiver that came in in June. He's been in a sling, his left arm in a sling since day one. And Marcus Freeman addressed that on day one and said, KK Smith's probably not going to be back for another month or two uh, dealing with some shoulder surgery that he had this offseason. The newer ones have been Kevin Bauman, the tight end who had had um, ACL surgery. Now, he's not on crutches and not in a sling or anything, but he's been on the stationary bike some. Backup cornerback Chance Tucker also on the stationary bike. And then a new one when we were last in practice, that was, I believe, Tuesday, and that was Aiden Gobira, who's a back-up defensive end with a lot of potential and promise, probably not being counted on early in the season. Uh, and Aiden was with the injured players. But again, he was doing some activities, just not playing football. And then we can note that um, Nolan Ziegler was not in practice. Um, he is expected back at some point, and it's a personal situation. So that's really all we're going to say about that at this point. Yeah, and as it relates to the injuries, it, there's nothing that I've gathered that makes it seem like anything is long-term. Obviously, K.K. Smith's going to be out for a bit, but the other guys, it didn't see, doesn't seem necessarily that it's going to be long-term. I think Kevin Bauman's the one that sort of raises your eyebrow because he just had such a bad injury history at Notre Dame. It's like, oh, man, what's – What's he dealing with now? So that's something that we'll be monitoring in terms of um, how how much this setback is really going to cost him, and, and what that what that means for for Notre Dame's tight end unit. So moving on from injuries, the most recent interviews with the offensive line and the defensive line, both the position coaches for those team um, position groups and some of the players, the defensive, actually it was big groups both days. We had some veterans and we had uh, some freshmen with the offensive linemen and with the defensive linemen, they brought a lot of uh, their players too. And the importance here is that Marcus Freeman fashions this still as an offensive line, defensive line driven team. And these are both position groups that had some question marks going into the season. So I guess, Tyler, we'll start with you and then I'll jump in. Let's go with the offensive line first. What did what are some of the things that you took away from the interviews uh, from Joe Rudolph, the offensive line coach, and some of the players that you might have spoken to? Yeah, I, I want to start with Zeke Carell. That's who I spent most of my time with. Um, and, and the big quote, from Zeke that I got from him was when I asked him about sort of the physicality of, of practice so far. And we haven't seen a ton of physicality. So I was curious if he felt like they were getting a lot out of, out of the physical practice, if practices had been physical, if they wanted, they needed to be more physical in terms of going forward to getting them better prepared. And he said, this is the most physical, this is a quote, this is the most physical team I've been a part of. And obviously Zeke Carell is on his fifth Notre Dame football team. Um, and physicality isn't necessarily something that Notre Dame always lacks. So I think that's a pretty important statement. Now everyone sort of speaks in very high terms and maybe some hyperbole at the beginning of every football season. Um, so we'll see if that 
matches that, but I, I don't think Zeke Carell would just sort of say that flippantly. Um, he was really excited about and uh, the practice that they had in Notre Dame Stadium on a Saturday night. Um, he said that was the probably the most f- physical and fun practice that he'd ever been a part of. Um, so that's something that's very interesting. If that if that comes to fruition in the season, that's uh, we're, we a lot of the talk is about Sam Hartman and what he can do for the offense in terms of like making the offense more explosive. But if they're also that physical of a team, that seems like this Notre Dame team could be quite a quite a lot to handle for opposing teams. So that I thought that was interesting. Um, Joe Rudolph, uh, he the most interesting thing to me was just sort of how he sort of broke down the right guard stuff. Um, he wants someone to be accountable. He wants them to be um, in control of themselves in terms of penalties and, and making sure that they're doing their assignments right and then sort of winning at the point of attack. And I, I think at least as I see it with the, the guard competition there on the right side, it's Andrew Kristoffic, who's maybe more veteran savvy, has more experience versus sort of the tenacity of Rocco Spindler. And if, that tenacity of Rocco Spindler can be controlled enough and done with enough technique to sort of make a difference. I think so that, that, I mean, the comments sort of leave the door open for Rocco to sort of take advantage of that, but I don't know if he's going to do that or not. So I, I like that Blake Fisher as well. He's someone, he was asked like what he's looking for in a right guard next to him. And he said, he just wants someone to be dominant and um, someone that obviously communicates well with him. Um, so those were, the bigger takeaways that I had from the offensive line conversations, what what were some of the things that you liked? Yeah, um, I agree with the part about Joe Rudolph, what he's looking for when he makes the final personnel decisions. I'll go through these and then I'll I'll expand a little bit more. How highly he thinks of the backup tackles, Mm -hmm. which are Emil Wagner and um, Tosh Baker. Tosh Baker. To the point where he took a look at them at guard because, again, he wants to put his best five linemen on the field, not necessarily who are the best guards, and yeah. he wanted to see if those two could could fit into guard. And then I think the third thing that jumped out at me, both from observation and the interviews, is how far Blake Fisher has come. Um, he wasn't as good of an interview because he is <laughs> – keeping a little bit closer to the vest. And I don't mean that in a derogatory way. I mean, he was just, he's all business. But when I watched him practicing, he's coaching some of the other tackles on his side. Yeah. Sullivan Absher, uh, for sure, is getting a lot of instruction from Blake. And he's also talking to the guards. It was interesting. It was like having an extra offensive line coach there. And and the thing is, Blake is much more sound in his technique. I think you will see fewer mental errors from him, and he's always been physical. And and circling back to what um, Rudolph said about making that final personnel decision, and I talked about this in the Insider Lounge right after practice. So there was – I watched the offensive line a lot in Tuesday's practice, and so Joe Rudolph taught them all this technique – and how to apply it to situations that were unfamiliar. And so he's going through groups of two guys, and then it comes down to Rocco's group, and it was Rocco and one of the centers, and the center blocked the nose guard, and Rocco fires out and blocks a linebacker and just knocks him into next week. Mm -hmm. The thing is, based on that technique, he was supposed to double-team the nose guard. And 
Joe Rudolph pointed that out. He said, that's disappointing that you didn't apply that. Why, why wouldn't you do that? It's frustrating. And then he moved on. And then a couple of his offensive line assistants then kind of picked up the conversation, then explained to Rocco. So if Rocco can, I mean, Rocco's going to go 100 miles an hour. He's going to be more physical than Andrew Kristoffic. If he can apply those lessons, and he's got plenty of camp to still do that, I, I believe Joe Rudolph thinks he can teach Rocco that, and that eventually he'll get the right right assignments and the right rules applied because teams are going to move around. They're going to show you different fronts and different things, and you're going to have to stick to your techniques and your rules. Otherwise, there's going to be gaps, no matter how physical you are. So, um, but I think if it, if there's a tie, the physicality and and the the learning is adequate, the physicality is going to mm-hmm. win that position group. That's why right now, if I had to wager, I would say Rocco Spindler is going to emerge. Um. I, I couldn't help but laugh when you were talking about how Joe Rudolph like explained and said this is disappointing because I don't know that yeah. that would be the way that uh, Harry Heastan would have said no. that. <laughs> no, there would be a different verbiage, and we would know that he was not only disappointed but pretty <laughs> PO'd. Speaking of Harry Heastan, I wanted to throw this question in from Stanley Watkins. After watching Joe Rudolph for a while, do you think his methods will be as effective as was Harry Heastan's? I, I don't know. I mean, he's lower decibel and more um, media-friendly language anyways. If you have your video cameras on, <laughs> you're not going to have to bleep things. Now, I know from talking to people that have been coached by um, Coach Rudolph in the past, he's pretty intense, and maybe he turns that on a little bit more when we're not in there. But here's what I like that's similar between the two he was a stickler for technique. He was a stickler for fundamentals and he was correcting, making corrections in the moment. I think as opposed to Jeff Quinn, who was more about chemistry and camaraderie, not that those are bad things and enthusiasm and confidence. These guys are going to drill down. They don't care if it (laughs) ruins your confidence for that day, you're expected to pick yourself back up. Uh, But I really like the depth that he got in terms of technique. I mean, just little reminders like Emil Wagner. You need to be a little bit wider on this. And all the time was coming the reminder that physicality is really going to be emphasized with this line, whether they're pass blocking or run blocking. And he wanted to see that on every rep. It was interesting because Andrew Gustafic got – Unfortunately, matched up with um, Charles Jagusa, who is six foot seven, 330 pounds. And for a guy that tall, kind of has a low center of gravity. And it was hard for him to push Charles back too far. So I thought maybe that was not an, an even fight there. But uh, um, so those, that is what I really, what syncs up. The other thing is that. Joe Rudolph didn't make wholesale changes in terms of terminology and what Notre Dame's broad offensive line strategy was. I mean, there's a few little subtle differences, but he built on what Harry Heastan did instead of, okay, we're starting all over and this is going to be completely new to you. So Mm -hmm. I think that's been a benefit. 
Yeah, and I, I mean, I think it's important that like he's also following Harry Heastan, so he's building upon some of the things that Harry Heastan did, and I think the combination of those things can be beneficial for these guys in the long run. Um, so, I mean, to take to see like Joe Rudolph's impact, I think you'd have to measure sort of the freshman that didn't have any Harry Heastan teachings. Yeah. Um, but I, but I do think that I think. I do. Sorry, I just said I think that I think that's that's a very good sentence. Um, <laughs> I, I think that that what they're learning can be applied in, in the same man, man, manner uh, that uh, it was when Harry Heastan was coaching. It's not delivered in the same way, but I do think that attention to detail is sort of in a in a similar vein. And I think sort of what Harry Heastan has instilled in this offensive line and the culture um, that I think permeated beyond Harry Heastan's first in at Notre Dame and sort of carried into the Jeff Quinn era, I think still exists there. Um, and that is helpful for Joe Rudolph and it's something that he can build, build upon. So I think those things can allow Joe Rudolph to have a lot of success with, with Notre Dame's offensive line. I think it's interesting that Joe Rudolph was recruited by two of what are considered two of the best offensive line coaches. Right. Um, in, and Bill Callahan, who's still coaching, um, at Wisconsin, not at Wisconsin, but he's still coaching in the NFL. He's he was at Wisconsin at the time, and then Harry Heastan was at Illinois and was in uh, the living room of the uh, Rudolphs. And uh, Joe Rudolph ended up picking Wisconsin, and then Joe Moore was good friends with Bill Callahan, and he used to come and heckle uh, Joe <laughs> Rudolph during practice, and then take him aside afterwards and talk to him. So he's been a chopping it up with a lot of good offensive minds. So one thing that's kind of interesting to me is he doesn't do a ton of that during even the summer or during training camp. He said he really relies on film to kind of get his own um, ideas of, of how he wants to approach things. But he, he does like to talk shop with those guys. Yeah, and I needed to refresh where Bill – Bill Callahan is currently. I wanted to make sure he's with the Cleveland Browns. That's uh, he's he's been with many different NFL teams over the years. So I wanted to double check, and that's that's where he's at currently. Sounds great. Is there anything else about the offensive line interview session that you wanted to highlight? Um, no. I, I spent my time instead of with the player. I spent most of my time with Joe Rudolph. I spent a little bit of time with Blake Fisher, but. Again, Blake Fisher is all business. I, I'm really eager to see how that translates onto Saturdays. All right. Well, let's let's talk about the defensive line then. I, I want to start with you since I, I know you spent the most of your, most of your time again there with Al Washington. What were the things that stuck out to you um, in conversation with him? Well, I'll tell you, he, you know, they didn't pull him away real quick, so we got to ask a lot of questions. Mm -hmm. and and he talked about just about everything. I think he is very optimistic about his depth. I think he feels like, and, and the players reflect this too, they are eager to be the surprise storyline of this team. They think that they can, and I think, you know, I don't know that we saw that kind of uh, hot air from, and I don't mean that it's bluster, but I don't think we saw that kind of hype coming from Al Washington last year when there were fewer question marks. I think that he's 
really excited about the depth. He's excited about the freshmen. Um, that year two is helping them. Um, and, you know, there's surprises that keep perpetuating, like Jason Anye, who is uh, going to be a junior this year from Rhode Island, who barely played his first two years at Notre Dame, who I thought probably would be a portal guy at some point going out. Right. And he has really turned into a key figure on their defensive line. And so, um, you know, when we're, when we're talking about the freshmen, the true freshmen, I think of that foursome, I'd say Bubakar Traore and Brendan Vernon are probably the most advanced right now in terms of maybe helping them in the spring. Uh, I know Al Washington was pretty confident. He had eight guys he could trust. I think that's expanded to 10 that mm -hmm. they could possibly use in their rotation. And so um, it was really positive. It was really interesting to hear him talk about Here's a here's one specific that I'd like to go into, mm -hmm. Jason Anye and Al Washington. So they had individual conferences where Jason just wanted to talk ball during the summer, and he would call he would call Al Washington during his vacation, and Al Washington was on board with that. He's like, "Hey, look, I'm watching film. I have a question about this." And those individual meetings, I think, really accelerated the progress this summer. Now, again, we're going to get to, you know, probably not, probably not Navy and Tennessee state isn't going to tell us a lot, but when we start to get to the NC state part of the schedule in week three, we're going to see how the phil philosophical part holds up in the real, real time in the real world. But you do see things that really encourage you. And again, in the spring, they surprised me. And I said, going into fall camp, there needs to be an equal amount of positive surprise in training camp. I'm going to keep my chips close until I see that full practice on Tuesday night. Mm -hmm. But I am I am open to being um, impressed. Yeah, I, I thought it was interesting. He was asked about guys emerging, and he didn't really give much of an answer. He sort of went with the guys that are, he named like the five guys that are I think he thinks are the the best guys and I I thought so I thought it was telling I mean four of them I think are the, the starters because he named Riley Mills Jordan Botello Javante Jean Baptiste Nana Osafa Mensa and Howard Cross and four of those five are going to start it's it's up to it's going <laughs> to be between Javante Javon John Baptiste and Nana Osafa Mensa in terms of who's starting at that big end position um, and I think both of them will play a lot so. But he said there's some other guys bu bubbling up there, and I, it seemed like he didn't want to show his hand there. And I'm curious if we get a sense for that when we get out to that practice. I, obviously, Jason Anya is someone we've talked quite a bit about. Um, uh, junior Tui Halamaka um, at the defensive end, Viper position, um, and what he can do there. Gabriel Rubio at, at defensive tackle. Um, so there's some guys there that I think that we know are maybe next in line, but how how significant of a role will they play? Um, I think is something that. Um, I'm intrigued to learn about, and that he he certainly will say good things about those guys when you ask about them specifically. But he wasn't he wasn't willing to like put his finger on this is the next the next guy. Um, I, I thought it was interesting that he included Nana Osafa Mensa in that list, um, and that is who I spent a lot of time talking to 
Um, he, he spoke to me about how he's bigger this year. Um, he's was f- sort of struggling. He's pl- he said he played at 248, 250 last year, and he's comfortably above 260 this year. I think he, I think the roster has him at 263. Um, and so I think he thinks that's going to help him a lot. Um, I think even not just playing at that end position, but maybe playing some three technique in certain situations, probably some pass rush scenarios there. Um, and his career is interesting. I mean, this, he's entering his fifth season. He's been more of a slow burn than anything. I, he played in a couple of games as a freshman, uh, got injured um, as a sophomore, and played a little bit as a junior and a little bit as a senior. His senior year, he didn't play that much more snaps than he did the season prior, but I think they were more high leverage than they were the year before. Um, and so I'm very interested to see what he he can do. And he spoke up. I didn't bring up Matt Bayless. He brought up Matt Bayless on his own, and that, that was someone that really helped him get through sort of the times that it would be natural for him to be impatient as a guy that was highly recruited and had all kinds of offers, and he comes to Notre Dame. In his first two years, he's been basically doing nothing. Um, but he said in that weight room, he was able to continue to build himself and knew that he was g- making progress, even if that wasn't showing up on Saturdays. And so um, I know we ha- we we sort of moved on from the Bat- Bayless discussion because there's only so much you can say. But I think it's interesting when he gets brought up by these guys that feel like they've gotten to this point in their career in large part due to Matt Bayless. Um, and not as like it's kind of sad that like. I feel like this is my year to really show out and he's not here with me, but he's like, I know he'll be watching and um, he'll be supporting me. So obviously there's, there's still that there, but to not have him in the, in the weight room with him on a daily basis, I think is, is, is interesting. Uh, speaking of the weight room, I was speaking to Riley Mills for a little bit. Um, and we all know that he's freakishly strong and athletic. Um, but I, for, to me, the thing is like, okay, we need that to show up on the field. But so it was interesting to sort of get some numbers from him. I asked him like, what were, what are the most, what are the weight room numbers that you're most proud of that you, that you think are most impressive? He said on the bench press, he repped 405 pounds five times and was cut off. He was not allowed to do more than that. He said he could probably do two or three more. Um, and then the 225, which is the normal bench press sort of mark that is used at the combine, um he's he repped 225 pounds 30 times uh so that sort of explains his strength and i think it's important to know i don't know the number in terms of like what his inch inches are for his arm length but riley mills has long arms he's not like a he's not one of those squatty guys that can get, bounce up above a bunch of reps because he doesn't have that far to go but um he also mentioned uh his squat as something he was proud of he said he squatted 500 pounds eight times so um, that sort of talks to the, the strength that Riley Mills has. He says he feels like that's going to make a difference for him going into this season where he's being asked to play defensive tackle on a regular basis. Um, one other thing I wanted to note from my interview with Dana Osafo Mensa was that he spoke very highly of Javante Jean-Baptiste. I thought it was sort of interesting that we didn't get a talk to uh, Javante at, at media availability. So I don't know if he's sort of undercover and wants to sort of let the play speak for himself. Um, but Nana said, Hey, he's going to be a problem for opposing offensive linemen. They don't know what's coming for them. Um, so I thought that was interesting. That's, I mean, that's someone that Nana is competing for playing time with. Uh, so sometimes when those guys are, are competing for playing time, like they're not going to say bad things about him, but they're not going to be, be as glowingly as, as it seemed like Nana was about Javante. So he's someone that uh, I know I'm certainly interested to see what he can do for Notre Dame this coming season. Well, I finally asked the question that everybody wanted to know about JJB, 
and that's why he wears the ski mask, the open ski mask, the shysty mask. Uh, because in the winter, it made sense. You'd see him running across the street to practice. He had that on, and he'd keep it on under his helmet. Well, now when it's 90-some degrees and humid, he's still wearing it and through practice underneath his helmet. And Al Washington wasn't quite sure. He said we, we could text him. I think that's against sports information rules, so the next time – we see him, we can ask him about the shysty mask. Uh, yeah, Nana actually brought that up on his own, so I followed up too. I was like, I, I, I was like, I didn't know if he was just like trying to hide from us or what, but he, he described it as sort of his character loading moment. Like that's him like getting into character for practice. Okay. It's like wearing the mask and uh, uh, that's that's part of his sort of uh, football identity, I guess. Um, so I haven't, <laughs> I haven't spoken to Devontae about that either, but that was uh, kind of interesting as well. My um, identity during those hot practices is running for the air conditioning afterwards and standing <laughs> in front of the fan during the in front of the fan in the not so well air conditioned uh, IAC. Yes, that is that is definitely a requirement. Are right, we got we got a few questions here? I know we're going to get into some big pictures things, and I think yeah. um, at least the, these can sort of go there. Let's go first to Big Dustin. Just flatly, how good can this team be? You know, I still see with with a lot of not knowing all the answers yet, I still, if I had to project, I would say 10 and 2. I think this team could possibly have a higher ceiling. I, I want to see more competitive periods before I would go that route or go lower. But I, th I think the 10 and 2 range with a possible ceiling of being able to compete for a playoff, but I'm just not ready to pull that prediction out of the hat yet yeah i think yeah 10 and 2 11 and 1 is probably what i'm thinking i i think as long as the defensive line and the safety positions can really sort of surge for notre dame i think that this defense can sort of maintain a high level of play and i'm sort of just anticipating the offense to to, to be improved from last season um, now maybe maybe I'm taking too much for granted that Sam Hartman's going to solve so many problems for Notre Dame's offense, but um, that's sort of how I look at things. And especially when you go into those big games, you think, well, maybe Sam Hartman's the best quarterback on the field in every game Notre Dame plays, except for against USC. And in that game, you're at least playing at home. Um, so I think there's an opportunity for Notre Dame to um, be able to really maximize that. Um, now it's certainly not going to be easy, um, and the the three games that Notre Dame has on its schedule, I think, is probably among if you pick the, the three toughest games on anyone's schedule. I think Notre Dame's right in the conversation with other other teams across the country that want to put their three toughest games up against them. So um, I think it's going to be a fascinating season, um, and that's sort of where I see see this team ending up. All right, uh, Joshua Williams with uh, about some news that was. Confirmed this week, not necessarily surprising, but no offense to the NBC sports team uh, assigned for the ND football on NBC. But why do we get minor leaguers when we've been with NBC NBC for so long? I liked Mike Tirico. So he's talking about Jack Collinsworth, Jason Garrett, and I don't remember the sideline reporter. Zora Stevenson, I believe is her name. Zora is. Stevenson. Um, I don't know. I mean, uh, <laughs> a long pause. We, we, we long. haven't we we haven't had a chance to talk to the athletic director in waiting who could probably answer that question. Um, but Pete Bavacqua, um, 
I don't, I don't have a good answer for it. I, you know, I, I love Mike, Mike Tarico too. You know, Jack Collinsworth is a Notre Dame guy. I think he's a guy that's rising in the profession. Jason Garrett, when I would watch the replays of the Notre Dame game, I, I think they've had better, you know, analysts before. I, mm-hmm. I don't get a ton of insight from him. Uh, I thought Tony Dungy was way better. And I think anybody's better than Doug Flutie. Um, so I, I can't answer that question. Tyler, do you have any insight? Yeah, I mean, Joshua I, said, LOL. I think he was anticipating my answer. <laughs> no, I think that I think that was what we were talking about. The Javante Jean-Baptiste mask. Oh, okay. but, um, I, I think my sense has always sort of been the Notre Dame on NBC product is sort of the second best football product or at least was the second best football product on NBC behind Sunday night football. Um, and so you're not going to get the best play-by-play announcer with an NBC contract because that's going to be the NFL guys. Um, and Notre Dame benefited from that with Mike Tirico and Tony Dungy, as Joshua Williams mentioned, because those, those were guys that they were sort of getting ready for bigger roles with it, with the um, other crew. Now, Tony Dungy, I think was already doing some NBC stuff when he was, when he jumped in the, in the booth with Mike Tirico. Um, so I think they were sort of just experimenting with him there and sort of seeing if he could be a color guy. Um, so I think that that's sort of our, always been, or at least as of late, been the hierarchy of things. And so Notre Dame benefited of that because Tariqa was next in line behind Al Michaels. And then when Al Michaels went elsewhere, um, then Mike Tariqa was, was, was sort of in waiting to replace him. And that's why Notre Dame sort of benefited from that. At least some Notre Dame fans, at least in my opinion, I think Mike Tariqa is great, just like Joshua said. Um, what I found interesting is in the release that NBC Sports sent out the other day was that the Notre Dame one wasn't the first one listed. It was their Big Ten Saturday night one. As Now, maybe that's just because it's the new thing for them, and that's what they're trying to promote. But when they list the, all their different like commentating groups, they listed the Big Ten Saturday night guys first. And I was like, oh, so Notre Dame's not even the first on the, the college football list anymore. So I don't know if that's part of it. The, the, the group for the Big Ten Saturday night games is – Noah Eagle, Todd Blackledge, and Catherine Tappan. Catherine Tappan um, has done stuff for, for, uh, with Notre Dame coverage previously. And I would say Noah Eagle and Todd Blackledge are probably more well-respected in those positions as a play-by-play guy and, and analyst than Jack Collinsworth and Jason Garrett. So um, I don't know what the answer for that is, and I don't know I don't know that Notre Dame is displeased with it. I mean, listen – you as a Notre Dame fan, you're you're not going to watch less because Jeff Collinsworth and Jason Garrett are, are on the on the on the uh, on the game. You might mute it, uh, but you're still going to watch the game. Um, so they can get away with that. Um, Jack Collinsworth is is a young broadcaster. I think obviously he's going to get better. Um, it's it's just funny to me that Notre Dame fans have, have for so long wanted sort of a Notre Dame voice in the booth, and they and now it's the play-by-play guy who's supposed to sort of play it more straight than the analyst. Um, so I, I think that I think from my, what I've heard from Notre Dame fans, they probably prefer it the other way. Have a straight play-by-play guy and get someone that's a better, uh, uh, that's a Notre Dame person as an analyst, whether it's a Golick or Brady Quinn, or I'm not saying that any of those guys would do that necessarily, but I think that's the sort of thing you're talking about that I think Notre Dame fans would probably be more interested in. Um, but 
for for me, I, like we watch the game in different ways because we're at the game. Uh, so we're I'm we're, I'm blessed to be able to do that. And then when I go back and rewatch it, and to me, I just like I would just like give me a lot of replays. Like even if Jason Garrett isn't explaining it in the best way possible, like at least I can see it again and they can do some illustrations. And maybe I don't agree with what they're saying, but um, I know he kept talking about the what were they calling the offense last year when they were looking to the sidelines? Um, he put a, he put a Check term with me. Uh, no, it was something else that they were, they were calling it. Um, slow mesh. <laughs> no, I, I, it doesn't matter, but he put With a term Tommy to Reese it. Offense. Yeah. Well, he put a term to it and everyone was like, that's what it's called. So now we have something to criticize. We hate it. They're doing that. Um, so I, I think that, um, those guys do play a significant role in sort of what, how the fan bases feel about, uh, sort of the product that's on the field. Scan offense. Thank you, Johnny S. The scan offense is what they were calling it. Um, I appreciate you guys chiming in. As opposed to the scam offense. (laughs) Yeah, the scam would have been much worse. But uh, I think some people thought the scan offense was a scam offense. So, um, All right, that's all I got on the NBC front. I know I I spoke a lot lot there. Okay, we're going to kind of go to a lightning round so that we can get some of the other stuff in here and then maybe circle back if we've got a little bit of time. Sure. Um, so the big picture stuff, there's a lot of realignment stuff going on. How might it affect ND? And we're talking about the Big Ten continuing to add, the Pac-12 falling apart, the Big 12 continuing to add, and Florida State, you know, having some bluster about if and when it might leave the ACC. We had the Under Armour news. It's not been made official yet, but Notre Dame and Under Armour are going to renew their contract for at least $10 million a year. There's been waves of NIL legislation, nothing that's really made it too far, but at least Congress is thinking about it. We had the green jersey reveal. There was a huge recruiting weekend, and we'll um, pause here for a second uh, because there was a commitment that came out of the Grill and Chill uh, recruiting event for mostly 2025 recruits, Justin Thurman, What can you tell our viewers about Justin Thurman, Tyler? Yeah, he's a very explosive running back. I think uh, that's sort of the the headline word that I would use for for Justin Thurman. Um, Someone who doesn't have a lot of production in his high school career yet. He was behind uh, a veteran running back um, in the Tampa area last season. Um, But I think it's someone that Notre Dame saw and was confident in, got him on campus for a camp this summer, saw sort of that explosiveness and uh, had him run a 40, do the broad jump and make sure that those things checked out. And he seemed like a Notre Dame fit. Um, So Dylan McCullough has things sort of rolling at the running back position there. Um, A very good get for Notre Dame early on there um, that I think um, will be worth getting excited about. While we're talking about the Grill and Chill event, Frank Sarah, who had a question submitted before the show even started. So, Frank, thank you for doing that. Um, but I wanted to save this for when we were talking about recruiting. Um, Frank asked, did you all think that Notre Dame would have more commitments after the chill and grill? I think they'll be to come. I mean, remember, these are 2025 yeah. recruits who can't sign national letters of intent until December of 2024. So we're talking well over a year I think what the grill and chill was is to get an edge on these guys and to get them 
um, interested in coming back from a game day visit, you know, just keep the lead, keep the relationship going, strengthen the relationship. And Tyler, you've talked to more of these guys. Charlton, Charleston Bowles, I think, has talked to every one of them. <laughs> but uh, um, it seems like that's been a positive thing. I, I think um, Frank would be interested in maybe an update on Deuce Knight. What, how do you think Deuce Knight came out of recruiting? Now, he was a few days before these other guys. He came in during the week and, instead of on that Sunday. But where do you think Notre Dame stands with Deuce Knight? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I'm comfortable saying right now that I think Notre Dame's in the lead for him. Now, I don't think that's a lead that no one else can uh, overcome. Um, but I think, like, if you had to make a decision today, um, I think that Notre Dame would be in a good spot for that. Now, I, the thing is, he's not in a hurry to make a decision, um, which, <laughs> if you're a Notre Dame recruiting fan, might bring you back to the Dante Moore saga. And you're like, no, we don't need a guy that's not ready to make a decision. Uh, so uh, we'll see what happens with Deuce Knight, but I do think that Notre Dame is in a good position with him. Um, Tennessee is certainly um, the top competitor there, but Ole Miss is making some noise um, to get in the mix as well. I think South Carolina is also trying to make a push for him. Um, so Notre Dame, I mean, it's not easy to go into SEC country. He's, he's from Mississippi. Um, he's moving – to, to play his senior uh, junior. Be a junior season um, in in Nashville, Tennessee. Um, so that's at least closer to Notre Dame, but it's also a very close to uh, um, ten, the University of Tennessee. Uh, so I think that we'll see how that goes for Notre Dame, but Notre Dame likes where it's at with him and is going to continue to push hard for him um, and has reason to believe that they're in a good spot. Gino Gadulli's um, done a lot of good things and Jared Parker – um, in terms of making an impact on his recruitment. And Marcus Freeman is making sure that he's heavily involved with the quarterback, even though obviously defense comes to him more naturally um, as a former defensive coordinator. But, uh, yeah, I mean, getting back to Frank's question about the grill and chill, like like you mentioned, in 2025, guys, I do think there will be more of those guys that visited that will eventually be committed to Notre Dame. Maybe it's not this month. Maybe it's three months from now. But – I think that Notre Dame's in a good spot with those guys. I, had, in my intel after I had said that, I thought at least nine of the guys that were on campus, that included Deuce Knight, um, Notre Dame, I would consider the leader for, and one of those was Justin Thurman, so Justin made me look smart. Uh, um, so if you want to know all those names, you need to be subscribed uh, and get all that access, get access to that on the Insider Lounge. Um, all right, uh, we uh, hope to... Um, get that information to you guys as soon as we can after those big visit weekends. So um, you should definitely be checking that out if you're interested in the recruiting coverage. Um, but yeah, I mean, to me, it's sort of a red flag when kids like commit on a visit anymore. Like that doesn't happen very much. Um, at least like in Notre Dame, at least in the Notre Dame recruiting world. Um, the first one, the most recent one to do that, I think was Davion Dixon. He committed during the blue gold game or it was right before the blue gold game. I think he got to campus early and um, uh, that was, came as a little bit of a surprise. And I think Notre Dame has got to make sure that that commitment sticks that some, someone else who did that previously with Brandon Davis Swain um, and he's no longer committed to Notre Dame. So uh, those are, those are some of the in interesting, that, that's more of an, uh, a rarity than it is sort of like a commonplace thing with, with Notre Dame. So I think, um, we we'll, we'll, got to keep an eye on these names. It's not, it's not that Notre Dame did a bad job with the 
the the grill and chill event. There's a lot of guys that uh, Notre Dame made some made some good progress with. And I can't keep track of your all your future cast. Did you have another future cast that came out of the grill and chill weekend? Or um, I have not made any new ones that came out okay. from that weekend. Owen Strebig okay. was on campus. I had put okay. I had made one for him earlier this summer. Um, so I I still like that that future cast, but I have not made any new future cast. Big, based big off tackle of from Wisconsin who's in the top 100 rivals top 100 and ascending so let's go back to one of those big picture things i know a lot of you guys are sure. and gals are interested in under armor but i'm going to talk about realignment real quick how can this affect notre dame mm-hmm. you know notre dame's not going to say wow washington and oregon are thinking about joining the big 10 maybe this is the time for us here's the three things when it comes to Notre Dame and independence, they want to be a football independent. And if they're going to do it, kicking and be, be something besides that kicking and screaming, here's the three things to take a look at. One is their media rights deal, the NBC contract. If they don't have an exclusive contract with somebody that would get them to look at TV money from, or TV streaming money, media money from somebody else. Number two is if the ACC were to implode and Notre Dame not have a place to house its men's and women's basketball teams and most of its Olympic sports teams. That happened with the Big East. The ACC said, come with us, play us five football games a year, and you can do that. If the ACC goes bye-bye, gets picked apart at some point, then that's something to pay attention to. The third thing would be uh, the uh, access to a playoff, access to becoming a national championship. With a new 12-team format, Notre Dame is in good hands there. So really, the media rights deal, if Notre Dame can't approach what the Big Ten and the SEC are doing with its media rights deal, which is being negotiated now and runs out at the end of the 2025 season, then they are really going to have to look at the Big Ten or the SEC most likely to be a competitive program moving forward. And again, the whole ACC thing, you know, is that grant and rights uh, agreement that those schools have that's so legally binding? Are there loopholes? Because that goes all the way into the middle 2030s. Uh, I'm sure somebody at some point, it sounds like Florida State's willing to test it with their lawyers and see, but if that if there's not a legal loophole, then Notre Dame doesn't have to worry about doing the shopping because of its basketball teams and Olympic sports teams. So, but they're not going to say, "Oh, wow, we're going to get left out of this. We're not going to be able to schedule." That's not a problem. It's it's all about those other things that I mentioned. Yeah, and because of that, I think the Florida State thing is the thing that's most worth monitoring. Because if if Florida State pushes to get out of the ACC, then that may be the first crack in in whatever's going on there. I did like this comment. I retweeted it or reposted it, I think is the proper terminology these days on X. Re-X'd it. <laughs> um, it was from Kevin Clark at The Ringer, um, and Kevin Clark uh, went to uh, Miami, so he is a little bit versed in the ACC stuff. Um, he retweeted Brett McMurphy quoting Florida State trustee Drew Weatherford saying, it's not a matter of if we leave the ACC, but how and when we leave. Um, and Kevin Clark said the teams that have actually jumped to the Big Ten and SEC never talk like this because they were busy joining the Big Ten and SEC. And I thought that was kind of fitting. It's like, yeah, I mean, 
FSU is talking a big game, but it's like they're really locked in by this contract. And if they're not, unless they do something to get out of it, then then go ahead and do it. But like it, it, you can talk about it, but you got to do something. And that's that's what's preventing this from happening. And I think as long as the ACC is viable, um, it seems like Notre Dame's comfortable with where things are going and with the contracts that it's going to be able to to get together. Um, now maybe now maybe all these this latest round of realignments talk makes things more difficult for Notre Dame in its NBC negotiations. I, I don't think that would make a big impact on that, but, but maybe it does. And so that, that would be worth monitoring too, but um, hopefully they get a better deal than the PAC 12 is offering at school. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Or the PAC nine or whatever it is at this moment. I mean, I think, I, I don't know, Eric, should we like see if they want to be broadcast on our inside any sports YouTube channel? Maybe we can, <laughs> maybe we can make a bid for the PAC nine <laughs> media rights. <laughs> there you go so i think that's probably all the time we have for today unless there was a straggling question or comment i don't think so uh I, well jay gibbons i'll throw this in here a uh, comment good to listen to someone who really knows what they are talking about so i don't know if he meant that with me or you i said that eric knows what he's talking about so um we appreciate you jay gibbons for for tuning in and listening um as we at least if we don't know what we're talking about convince you that we know what we're talking about <laughs> i think it's the spongebob golden spatula that's the new part of my background here um, you're gonna have you're gonna have to tweet that out anytime notre dame flips somebody before tyler signs off i want to thank legacy heating and air for sponsoring us legacyheatingandair.com if you want more in, information about them also remember to subscribe to our channel it helps us bring you content and if you ring the notification bell You'll get notified whenever we have new content, not just this show, but all the videos that uh, Tyler and Charleston pump out from practice highlights to post-practice interviews. There's a lot of good stuff on our channel. No reruns right. either. Yeah, well, but you can watch this as many times as you want. So we, <laughs> there's no viewing limit. Uh, you can watch this as much as you want. Um, you don't have to pay for it. Like You may have to pay to watch Pac-12 games in the future. Um, but uh, we appreciate everyone for tuning in. Um, we will be back next week for another Football Never Sleeps. We'll have another Inside Indy Sports podcast next week, um, so check for those in those proper places, and we will talk to you soon.